With the news media covering increasingly more news about data breaches and security and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor, we're here to help you mitigate potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. Welcome to the 23rd episode of my show. I use this platform to help raise the awareness of information security and privacy risks and issues, and I also love to provide listeners with practical tips and actions to help improve information security and to also better protect their privacy. Please check out my websites, Symbus360.com and privacyguidance.com. And guess what? I'm going to be teaching live some online IAPP, CIPM, and CIPT privacy certification classes really soon. So send me an email if you want to know more about that. Now, my July Privacy Professor Tips message was published on June 28th. Did you get yours? Well, if not, sign up for them. They are free. And you can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. And please send me an email letting me know who your privacy or security go-to person or hero is. could be at your work or in your personal life. I'm recognizing privacy heroes in my monthly tips messages throughout 2018. Now, my tip of the week today relates to one of the topics that I covered in my July tips. I provided an example of quite an extreme and really pretty explicit type of phishing message that I received that claimed the sender had data about me and they were going to post it online and then encrypt all the data on my computer if I didn't pay. It was pretty pretty startling to receive. Well, so what I did was I looked closely at that message, and here are just a few of the red flags I noticed. There were numerous spelling and grammar mistakes. Now, what was interesting was the sender tried to explain this away in the first line of the message. But also, then I looked at the name of the sender, which was UK Parking Control, and then I looked at the email domain, which was from India, and those were mismatched, so that's another flag. And then the scammer was telling me that I had to pay via cryptocurrency, in this play, uh, in this particular case, using Bitcoin. And you know what? Cyber crooks oftentimes ask for payments in this way, but probably... The most revealing and the thing that really told me, oh, this is somebody that is just trying to get money from me and they don't really have this data. 
I copied a portion of the explicit part of the text of that message. I put it in quotes and did an online search, and I found that exact same online message reported many other times in many other places online saying it was a scam. So be on the lookout for phishing messages like this. And, you know, simply delete them when you see them. You can also report them. Uh, to certain investigators. See my July tips to see the actual message itself and to see many more of my tips for July. So today, I am discussing a topic that has been really for a long time near and dear to my digital security practices, and that is encryption. Now, before we get to our discussion, I want to pass along some of my own personal concerns I've had for encryption or views about encryption since uh, I've been looking at this. Now, one long-time concern that I've had is the continued push in the U.S. from the White House, and this is from all the men of the uh, White House administrations, really, since late 1980s, and also from many other government agencies. And it's not only just in the U.S., but it's also from other countries' governments as well. This is a push to require tech companies to build in a back door to allow government agencies and investigators to be able to decrypt encrypted communications. Now, I have a few points to make about this. So first, keep in mind, you cannot achieve privacy without strong information security. And you cannot have strong information security when tools, security tools, have back doors built into them. This is really an information security 101 lesson that has been taught for decades, but it seems like it's just not one that our uh, various lawmakers and government leaders have uh, truly understood, and that leads them to having these pushes uh, to make decisions that could impact everyone's privacy and information security. It's also something that all information security professionals need to make sure their own organization leaders truly understand. So here's five important and compelling facts that government and other types of organizational leaders really need to make sure that they know about with regard to the risks of building in back doors for encryption specifically and for all types of security tech tools in general. So number one, backdoors can be and often are exploited accidentally, resulting in privacy breaches and associated great harm to those involved. Backdoors in technologies are nothing new. You know, I started out as a systems engineer at a large multinational organization at the beginning of my career, and I saw fellow engineers and programmers building in backdoors and hard-coded passwords that, quote, only they knew. (laughs) And, uh, of course, anyone else who happened to look at the code would also be able to know as well. And oftentimes they did it at the urging of their managers or um, others who were leaders in the business. I also saw many of these practices result in significant 
systems outages and program mistakes and privacy breaches once they were put into production. So that's one risk. The second risk is backdoors will simply not remain a secret. Backdoors will be discovered and used by the adversaries and the crooks that they were established to try to find in the first place by being able to get into them. So there's no such thing as a secret backdoor if even one human knows about it. Number three, backdoors created to fight crime will be used to commit crime. Proficient enemies who are looking for vulnerabilities in security technologies, guess what? They know how to exploit the weaknesses when they find them. And it has happened. It has happened many times before. And the crooks are also willing to pay large amounts for the details in such built-in backdoors and other types of unpublished vulnerabilities. An undisclosed vulnerability in a widely used commercial software reportedly sells in the U.S. for $160,000 on average in the dark web crime network. Number four, backdoors and other types of weakened security create opportunities for malicious insiders and those who are authorized but unaware. Um, Humans are the weakest link in information security, and certainly trusted insiders present the greatest threat to systems and information. And then five, backdoors and technology, they really do hurt business success, and they can thwart technology advances. If weakened security in commercial products and services is the result of a national policy, as opposed to you know other types of causes, such as human error and corporate interests, then this weakened security truly does harm the nation economically because it harms the businesses that are creating them. So after having so many privacy breaches impact hundreds of millions of individuals, Consumers justifiably want products and services from companies that they believe are building secure technology that do not have backdoors built into them, regardless of who told them to build in those backdoors. And implementing such policies could have a significant negative impact on the competitiveness of the information technology sector. Now, too many different folks who are in leadership Uh, positions have talked about requiring tech companies to build in back doors that, quote, only the government will know, only the government will use. Well, in in consideration of my previous five points, here are two very important additional points to remember about encryption. Number one, encryption is based on math. It's not based on magic. So, you know, this is to provide a comment to the urging of so many who are asking for backdoors that will only work for their particular agencies, but no one else outside of them. It uh, is much more complex, and it takes a lot more working to get something like that actually accomplished. And then number two, the government, oftentimes I've heard this statement, the government has uh, a right to search. Well, definitely they, they must have the right to search, but Is there a right to find? And this goes to allowing the general public to strongly protect their own data without undue search of things that they may want to protect and keep only within their own view and control. So there are just a few of my thoughts on encryption backdoors. 
And when we're talking about encryption, there are just so many issues to discuss. It's a huge topic. And encryption is such an important issue to discuss in today's volatile business uh, climate that I'm going to be doing several different shows on encryption to address the various aspects. Now, today, I want to first look at how widely encryption is being used throughout the world and the associated trends with using encryption. So, let's have a discussion about encryption trends throughout the world. And I have the perfect person to discuss this topic of global encryption trends and related practices. So today, my guest is Dr. Larry Poneman, who is the chairman and founder of the Poneman Institute and is a pioneer in privacy auditing and the Responsible Information Management, or RIM, framework. Now, Dr. Poneman was appointed to the Advisory Committee for Online Access and Security for the United States Federal Trade Commission. Uh, he was also appointed by the White House to the Data Privacy and Integrity Advisory Committee for the Department of Homeland Security. Dr. Poneman was also an appointed to two California State Task Force on Privacy and Data Security Laws. Um, he's also a member of the Shared Assessments Advisory Board. Dr. Poneman earned his Ph.D. at Union College, and he has a master's degree from Harvard University and attended the doctoral program in system sciences at Carnegie Mellon University. Dr. Poneman earned his bachelor's with highest distinction from the University of Arizona in Tucson, Arizona, and he's a certified public accountant and certified information privacy professional. So, Larry, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Well, thank you, Rebecca. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. Well, you've you've gotten some pretty uh, impressive uh, types of work that you've done. So I'm really looking forward to digging into the results of your study. But, you know, I have listeners from all over the world, and they're always telling me uh, before, you know, I start chatting with my guests, if they could learn a little bit about what my guests did that led them to where they're at now. So... Uh, I understand that you actually got started with uh, using encryption and cryptography when you were in the Navy? That's correct, Rebecca. Uh, I could give you the, the abbreviated tour, if you like. I'd tell you, the audience a little bit about how I became uh, interested in and professionally associated with encryption technologies. Yeah, definitely. Let's hear Okay, well, basically, thank you again for inviting me, and I'll give you the short story, which is a little bit more interesting than the long, boring <laughs> story. Uh, but I, I started my career, uh, I suppose, in the not, not really thinking that I would devote my life to security and data protection, privacy, and so forth, but I was just interested in mathematics, and basically, uh, my dad was in World War II in the Navy, and my uncle was in the Navy, and I liked the way the uniform looked and everything like that, so I said, you know... I'm going to be different and join the Navy. At that time, we were winding down Vietnam, and people would say, are you crazy to enlist in the military? Mm -hmm. But we're a pretty patriotic family, and we, I thought it would be a good idea to do it. 
Um, when I when I joined the Navy, they basically have tests, and uh, my aptitude test uh, revealed that I was that I kind of knew that, that I was stronger on the mathematics side uh, than uh, maybe uh, some of the other uh, qualities that people have. Um, and uh, I, I really wasn't rated uh, or slotted to be a cryptologist, uh, um, but uh, that happened uh, in boot camp where they basically said, that's what you're going to do, Larry. Ah. <laughs> Hope you like the choice we're making for you, which was good. And, uh, and then after completing schools, different schools for um, security, intelligence, and, and, uh, and other aspects to the rating called the CT, um, I was then uh, ordered to a ship, the USS Truxton, a guided missile cruiser, and a flagship uh, for Navy at that time, and uh, managed to uh, see many countries and do all sorts of cool things. And so it was a great experience overall. But when we used encryption, we were actually, I was attached to a code breaking group. I suppose I can talk about it now because it's old information because it's more, you know, many, many years ago. But uh-huh. um, the group, the group that was uh, uh, where, that we uh, basically did uh, is we were looking for um, Russian submarines uh, because they were very good at creating um, creating a silent running uh, vessel. And uh, we basically needed to know where they were. And we weren't as good as the Russians in terms of the Russians were pretty good at saying, oh, we know where the U.S. <laughs> submarines are. We were less successful. So we decided to use different technologies. And we basically created a signature that matched against uh, the Russian submarines and were able, as a result of you know painstaking an, an, uh, analytics and analysis over many months, we were able to uh, c- come up with a model that proved to be very valuable. So that's the starting point. And then uh, did other things in my life. Uh, got my PhD in accounting, which is kind of interesting. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, taught as a university professor for about a decade. I worked in the intelligence community for uh, just shy of 10 years, so another decade. And uh, then there was a partner with uh, KPMG, a large consulting firm uh, in New York. And then I joined Pricewaterhouse and became PricewaterhouseCoopers, where I was a senior partner and founded the company's privacy and information security practices. Um, and then uh, decided I wanted to do things on my own and work with my lovely wife. And so we started Poneman Institute 18 years ago, and it has been, Rebecca, uh, just a blessing. We just love the work that we do. And there's always a topic in security that, uh, you know, that you can study. It never gets dull or stale. Oh. And that's, uh, and, and you know that firsthand, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Well, that, wow, what a um, a varied career you have, but definitely. So you started in the year 2000 with your, um, with your business. So you yeah. really had some great foresight into getting started into doing these types of studies back then when we were just starting you know, really the internet was just heating up with all sorts of uh, online, um, you know, business and everything else. So uh, that's really fantastic. And just FYI, my dad was uh, in the Navy in World War II as well. So uh, we'll have to talk sometime about what our dads did (laughs) while they were in the Navy. Um, Yeah. So, so you've done a lot of studies then over the last 18 mm-hmm. years in your business. And one of the things that caught my eye was a study you just recently did. You know, as I mentioned mm-hmm. in my intro, encryption is something that I've 
been interested in in a very long time. And, you know, I'm a a huge fan, if you can have a fan of encryption, but um, it, it can be such a valuable technology. And I don't think it's really used enough. But earlier this year, I was really happy to see that you did a study to look at what are the trends in global encryption. So can you provide a little bit of background about uh, that study and and the countries involved? Well, absolutely. And, um, you know, Rebecca, if you like, I can give you a URL and you could, uh, if anyone is interested in getting a copy of the paper, we will provide that pro bono. There's no fee associated with it. Uh, The only thing we ask is to get a Poneman study, read it and call us up Tell us that you love it or you hate it, but to give us, you know, contact uh, our institute. We love hearing from you. I tell people, like, we're very lonely up here in northern Michigan where we live. Uh, so we get calls from people around the world about our research. It's a big day, which is great. Uh, a little bit yeah. about the study. The t- official well, did, title is kind of... Well, oh, before sorry? you get started, did you want to give the URL so our listeners can know um, that? Sure. You know what? I should know this right off the top of my head, but uh, I will, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. I'll, for next time we have a radio program, um, I will, you will have that URL to it, but I don't, okay. I can't remember it quite frankly. I call it a senior moment. <laughs> no, that's so, fine. You know what? I'll put it with the description of the show. So anyone oh, who's cool. listening to the show can find it on the Voice America site where my show is found. So we'll do that. That's, that's great. You know, the other possibility, just to save time, too, would be uh, uh, research at Um Research at and then our, our company's name and my last name, Poneman, P-O-N-E-M-O-N, dot O-R-G. And uh, if you send us an email, we will get it out to you, like, within the, that, normally within 24 hours. Great. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. yeah, go ahead and let us know about who all participated and, and how you set up that survey. Yeah, sure. Well, um, our sponsor of this research is Talis eSecurity, um, and they've been the sponsor of this particular series. Uh, we, we conducted this study in different countries throughout the world, uh, and it's uh, in its 13th year, so we have actually 12, 13 years of trend data that we could uh, that we, we look at and, and basically could monitor huge issues, changes, new applications for encryption, uh, the barriers to success and, and a whole bunch of other variables. It's a pretty big mm-hmm. survey. Uh, in total, we have over 5,200 individuals who are mostly in IT and IT operations, but also in security, cybersecurity, data protection, some folks even in privacy. So it's a, a varied sample, a sampling frame. And we do this research, as I mentioned a couple of seconds ago, in a number of countries. Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Australia, Brazil, France, Germany, India, Japan, Mexico, Russia, and UK and US, of course. And the most recent is South Korea. And so if you, oh. anyone's interested in recommending another country to add, we're always open. <laughs> we like to add a new country every, uh, every year that we do this study. Right. Um, I, I think, I, I think uh, the study, you know, when we do this research, it's a, it's a labor of love, we, we find the topic very interesting, but when you do a survey and you have over 5,000 respondents who are professional, you know, work in IT or IT security and so forth, that's, it's hard to, to do it. And we, mm-hmm. you know, we're blessed and lucky uh, we were able to do this work and get good quali- qualified respondents uh, throughout the, actually in, in all regions of the world. So uh, mm-hmm. that's what this study is about. 
Well, and what I thought was interesting was you looked at so many things, like you said, but um, looking at the, the most mature encryption strategies, I thought it was interesting that your findings came back that Germany and the U.S. had the most mature encryption strategies, while the Russian Federation and Mexico had the least mature. So can you maybe tell us a little bit about that particular finding and and if any of those findings surprised you? Yeah, so the, the, the yes and no. There are some surprises. I'll mention that in a second. But basically, we uh, one of the variables that we created the survey is a maturity using a maturity model. And the idea is that if you use encryption and it's fully deployed throughout the organization, so it's an enterprise solution rather than a point solution, that basically means you're more mature. And if you're basically using encryption for more than one application, like many applications, that's another sign of encryption maturity. So um, the U.S. and and, and the uh, and the U.K. and um, Germany, France, and maybe a couple of other countries, over time have very had significant shifts in maturity. More and more organizations are in fact deploying encryption in a holistic way, not just again as a point solution in a number of different applications. Germany is a special case. Uh, when we do Poneman research globally. Germany stands out um, in, in terms of security posture and the ability to, you know, accomplish wonderful things from a security perspective. It seems that German companies are just more in tune, just have a stronger culture to security, and as a result, we tend to see these, this pattern. Uh, and it's not true for other European countries, because people might say, well, maybe it's the European Union, you know, maybe it's uh, the new data privacy regulations in the EU, but it seems like there's a culture for security in Germany that's unmatched. The U.S., uh, you know, quite frankly, our country it was a laggard for many years, believe it or not, oh, in adopting really? uh, encryption, but it shifted about six or seven years ago. Um, mm-hmm. So we thought that was kind of cool. If you kind of look at it, it's, uh, you know, it looks like the U.S. is in the bottom quartile, and then it kind of moves up to the mean and median, and then improved to, you know, continues continues to improve. So uh, I think that's a good fact. But we, we do notice that there are trends and big issues like the uh, the recent privacy regulation in the European Union, other regulations around the world uh, that is driving demand for good quality, uh, secure um, encryption solutions. You know, uh, you mentioned that you noticed that the U.S. was a laggard until about six, maybe seven years ago. That's about the same right. time as the uh, huge Target breach. Remember that of 2013? Yeah. Um, I wonder if there was a correlation there. That's kind of interesting. That just kind of popped into my brain. But um, also about the the Russian Federation being, you know, one of the, the least mature, I find that interesting based upon the fact that, like you mentioned, even back when you were in the Navy, they had some mm-hmm. of the strongest encryption technologies, but yet when you're looking at encryption strategies within organizations, those two things don't match then, really, do they, as far as... Um, no, great question and, and very insightful. Um, it, it's, it's true that you know, R- Russian companies probably have the capability to be very strong in encryption because... Again, it goes back to the cultural issue, but the people who are in the information security business in Russia tend to be people with like two PhDs, 
you know, mm-hmm. like quantum mechanics and physics and just the smartest people you could ever meet. Uh, but in terms of the, the translated to security at the organizational level, and we don't necessarily see that. So the skills might be there, but in the, the motivation to implement uh, uh, encryption is not as strong as it could be. And it, but, I, but I think there might be something else behind the scenes. When, when you do surveys, some of it's conjecture. You, know, you get the results back, and not everything is perfectly consistent. And you try mm-hmm. to figure out why is that the case. And Russia has been a special case because, you know, just sometimes they're a friend of the United States, sometimes they're a foe. And so you can mm-hmm. actually get, have issues in terms of am I getting the true full picture when I'm doing a survey in Russia? And I think I'm getting the 80, 90 percent, but there's something there that we haven't figured out that's going on. Um, so, you know, that, that maybe we'll do a show next year and I'll have some data points because we're actually trying to figure that out. Yeah, you know, it, it really makes me wonder. Um, and, and we're coming up on a break right now, Larry. So we're going to yeah. take a pause here and then we're going to hear from our valued sponsors that I do appreciate so much. Uh, we're speaking today about encryption trends throughout the world with Dr. Larry Poneman, chair, chairman and founder of the Poneman Institute. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through my website, Simbus360.com, PrivacyGuidance.com, and my LinkedIn site. Please stay with us. We'll be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy, and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyprofessor.org. Rebecca Harold and Associates offers information security products, privacy, and compliance tools, education, and consulting. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages. She has published since 2007. Visit privacyprofessor.org for help and answers to your questions. Have you heard about Symbus360.com? The Symbus system includes information security, privacy, and compliance management, policies, procedures, and forms, third-party and vendor management, training and awareness, breach response and management, employee tasks and assets management, and risk management automation. Symbus also offers Alien Vault Unified IT Security Management at reduced pricing and also cyber liability insurance with limits up to $25 million. You need to find out more about the Symbus system. Visit Symbus360.com. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Hello, and welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Today, we are speaking with Larry Poneman. He is the chairman and founder of the Poneman Institute. And we're talking about his encryption study uh, that talks about worldwide trends. Um, and, you know, it's so fascinating. There's so many things in this report to talk about. But, uh, Larry, I do want to talk about some of the specific parts of the study because I think there are different topics in there that so many organizations are thinking about. So one of the things I want to touch upon is the section that covers about the Internet of Things or the IoT devices. And I thought it was interesting that uh, the study found 49% of respondents said that encryption was partially, at least partially deployed. So, you know, IoT is one of the areas that I do a lot of work in, and I, was, I thought that was kind of high. But then again, what does at least partially deployed actually mean? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So, and, and, and I apologize to the readers. Sometimes there are terms like partially deployed, and we think we know it. So we figured, why do we have to explain it? <laughs> but it, is, it, 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 could, it could mean a lot of different things. So if suppose that you're deploying um, a technology, an encryption technology, and you basically are doing it for, you know, say you have a company with thousands of employees and it's being used for a subset, you know, four or five employees or, you know, five or six executives, whatever, um, that's deployed, but partially, in other words, it's not deployed across the enterprise. And so in order to be fully deployed, you basically have to have your technology deployed widely. It becomes an enterprise solution, not a point solution. And so that's kind of the dividing line. And that means that you can have very few uh, things that are encrypted, uh, devices, applications, and so on, but uh, it can still get into that category partially deployed. And that's why that percentage seems so high. Ah, that makes sense then. Because as I read that, I was thinking, well, maybe it means it's uh, encrypted within the IoT device itself, but not as it's transmitting or maybe not, uh, you know, within the apps as it, the apps are communicating with it. So that helps a lot. Yeah. Uh, and and I could see that. I could see some organizations just having a few of their uh, primary users using the encryption, but yet not deploying it everywhere. Um so what else did you find out about the IoT devices? Because I know a lot of, a lot well, of businesses are looking at those. Yes. Yeah, so, the, you know, the IoT, of course, Internet of Things, you know, there are different types of devices and they have different footprints. So, you know, it could be that the IoT device called your refrigerator <laughs> that knows who you are and what you do and what you're eating and you sh- shame you should be on a diet, that refrigerator um, basically could have the capacity to deploy different security tools or technologies in, in the device itself or in the application. Um, so there are tools or applications that are encrypted uh, as we can encrypt the laptop or, or a printer and so on. But a lot of IoT devices have a very small footprint, and so using conventional you know, um, to, uh, uh, encryption like AES or triple dot, uh, DES or whatever could actually be very hard to do because you don't mm-hmm. necessarily have a large enough footprint to 
you know, to use that kind of technology. So it's a, it's, there are a lot of organizations that are struggling with the issue of, you know, we, IoT is fast and furious. It's being used extensively. The people who are building the tools are not actually thinking about security in, for the most part until it's after the fact. And so a lot of organizations are struggling, you know, how do they actually make sure that if there's sensitive data collected, that it doesn't leak out, that it basically meets a generally accepted standard. And I, th- I think a lot of work has to continue to develop in this space pretty quickly because it's presenting potentially huge risk for companies and people, uh, you know, it's our data. Yes, yes. And, you know, one of the other areas that I have been working with is medical devices, which, of course, many of those yeah. are types of IoT devices. And I've talked with a lot of enge- uh, medical device engineers. And like you said, um, getting it engineered into that small footprint or even uh, trying to figure out how to put it into some of those devices is a challenge to them. But it kind of leads to another finding of your study that I thought was very concerning and maybe related in some way, but um, your study revealed that only 26% of healthcare data is encrypted. And, you know, know, when I, that, well, that's really scary to hear. So, you know, what are your thoughts about those findings and some of the related things that you learned? Sure. So, um, yeah, I've used that term laggard before about the U.S., but in terms of industries, healthcare for many years has been a security laggard. And the reason, for the most part, is a lot of healthcare providers really don't have the resources to do the more advanced security uh, protocols and, pro- and processes and policies and so on. So even though there are requirements like HIPAA, it doesn't necessarily say thou must do X perfectly. And so a lot mm-hmm. of organizations have really... Uh, in healthcare, have just not done a, 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 a good enough job of protecting information. Another factor about healthcare is, for the most part, a lot of healthcare providers don't believe that they're at risk because they're not a big brand. They think if they're going to be attacked by the hacker, it's going to be you know against big companies with big brands, you know Facebook mm-hmm. and Google and uh, American Airlines and, and so on. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not true. We now know that healthcare information is very valuable, and it's a gateway, a stepping stone to some other larger systems. So it is mm-hmm. definitely an issue, and I, uh, hopefully over time the, the, the deployment rate will increase substantially. Yes, yes, that awareness really does need to to raise significantly and um you know hopefully as physicians and those working in healthcare learn more about this why they'll realize they need to insist from the medical device providers that they need to provide those types of controls within the devices themselves um yeah and, and your study also showed then the second least encrypted data was for customer information. <laughs> so it's like, oh, my gosh, holy cow, just, with, you know, with the recent uh, talk of having, what, 340 million records that were out in the open on the Internet uh, yeah. from, yeah, so what exactly. is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> well, again, it's, it's it's a weird finding, but a lot of organizations feel like um, in, in, you know customer data is not necessarily regulated in the same way as a, a patient record. Uh, they basically don't necessarily see the, the need to encrypt everything because, in their mind, it's going to create um, sh- uh, stoppages or uh, basically reduce the efficiency. 
of applications. And so there's kind of like a lot of pressure and when we're dealing with customer information. I sometimes think uh, we, we, we put in the security protocols really late in the development process, and mm. that's probably something that will continue to create a lot of risk until, you know, a government entity, whoever says, you know, if you're handling this type of information, uh, even if it's not medical information or really sensitive personal information, but it's still PII, uh, PHI, basically you're obligated to encrypt it. And there's no compensating control. That's the other way around this. You say, well, uh, we're not doing encryption, but we have DLP. <laughs> so yeah. we kind of have another control that helps us achieve the same goal. And that's not true. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, definitely an issue. Yeah. You know, over the years, I've heard from so many of my own clients when I'm having meetings with them and even at conferences, you know, like um, we were at Secure World Expo talking with so many of the attendees there. I hear a lot of frustration that people say, well, if a law doesn't explicitly name a particular type of personal data or customer data, then that often gets dismissed as not needing to be protected. And hopefully GDPR, uh, the global uh, or the general data protection regulation out of the EU, for my listeners who aren't familiar with that term, uh, hopefully that's raising some awareness there too. Yeah, Um, I think that regulation is tough and there'll be big fines. And I think we'll see organizations having newfound religion (laughs) through encryption because of the great technologies for mitigating that risk. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Well, and talking about even trying to figure out, you know, what to protect and what not to and and maybe ignoring it. Another finding from your study was, uh, and this seems like a large number, uh, for today, because encryption has improved so much in the last, you know, five, 10 years. But your study found that 57% of respondents indicated that key management was very painful. So I'm wondering, (laughs) can you maybe explain what was so painful to your, uh, to your study participants about that? Sure. Sure. So, you know, a lot of organizations are migrating to the cloud. Um, and so, you know, you have some of your information on premises, some of it's in the cloud, some of it's between these two places, some of it's lost forever. Uh, and I think the painful issue is that um, when you basically have encryption keys floating around, you basically forget about it you know, from an encryption point of view. You need to have structure. And so a lot of organizations have like a bring your own, like it's like bring your own device. They have the bring your own key uh, where mm. they don't, because they don't trust the, the um, they don't trust the, the uh, cloud provider with that information, uh, but it creates organizational stoppages and a whole bunch of other, you know, organizational workflow type problems if you don't get that under control. And people and companies make mistakes, big mistakes. Like mm-hmm. there was one data breach um, that uh, I'm not going to mention the name, but healthcare company, and they basically had a lot of sensitive information on a server, is, you know, maybe as much as 100,000 records, and mm-hmm. the encryption key was on the same server. You know, common oh. mistake. <laughs> but yeah. Big problem. <laughs> big so, problem. And and then not all encryption is is equal. Um, you know, uh, you want. Uh, I, I like symmetric. Versus, uh, you know, um, you know, where you, there, where you have one key rather than sharing multiple keys, um, but there, are just, you know, there are just decisions that you can make along the way where maybe you could have an eighty percent 
encryption rate. You know, it's not on every issue. There are corner cases, but you don't necessarily have to do 100%. And a lot of organizations get lost in that. You know, if it's not 100% deployed, we're not doing our job. And it's hard to get any anything at 100%. So you could, you know, as long as it's more than 80%, you're probably in a place that's good enough. Maybe not perfect, but good enough. Yeah. Well, and that's a good point. I mean, there there's so many different types of encryption and different ways to manage the keys. And then, as you talked about, just, um, and we've kind of implied, just knowing where all the data is at for all the devices right. <laughs> to be able to manage that, too. Um, so Absolutely. one of the things I thought was interesting, too, um, and I hadn't really thought about it before until I, re- I read your study, but it was uh, looking at whether or not IT operations was most influential in building the encryption strategy versus the lines of business or the business units mm-hmm. as being most influential. So I think, and let me know if I'm not getting this right, but it sounded like the IT operations was most influential um, within the United States, Australia, and Mexico. But mm-hmm. maybe you can explain to listeners the difference between IT versus lines of business uh, units sure. being influential. Sure. So you know, traditionally, the IT function, which would include IT security, would be centralized. It would be a centralized mm-hmm. function within the organization, and it could be a, a, a profit or even a cost center, but it's basically managed internally, and normally in the corporate IT department under the auspices of the CIO. Mm-hmm. Um, but over time, we start seeing more and more businesses saying, you know, the IT department is too slow. We need to move mm-hmm. fast. And in part, it's because of, you know, the, uh, the great tools that are now available, um, you know, in the cloud environment. But for the most part, a lot of organizations have blind the business, assuming more and more responsibility for security, not just for encryption. And so I, I think in our data, we are seeing that trend, right? As, as little by little, the, the uh, line of business is being is more responsible, more influential in establishing the uh, strategy and tactics for encryption as compared to the IT organization. We also looked at a third uh, a player in this, and that's the information security, uh, uh, the CISO specifically. Mm-hmm. And, they don't necessarily stack up very well relative to the line of business or the IT organization. So it is a trend right. that seems to be moving to the, uh, the line of business. You know, as you you talked about that, it reminded me um, of through the 1990s, I worked at a large corporation doing their security and privacy, and it reminded me of our move how we went from an IBM mainframe, all of a sudden we had it very controlled on the IBM mainframe from the IT area, and all of a sudden we saw the business units having netware servers popping up, and they were doing things out there on their own, and I'm thinking, wow, this is just kind of like the same trend that I saw in the 90s for that. Now it's being done with uh, encryption and probably other things as well. Yeah, Um, do you remember mini computers? Remember oh that it's the same thing. <laughs> that yes. was a big deal moving from the big big iron to a little iron. Uh, but uh, it, it's the same sort of issues, decentralization versus centralization of the IT function. And it's ebb and flows. It, it, it doesn't necessarily stay the same over time. And when you have 12 years of data points in that trend analysis, it's kind of interesting to see that move. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. I bet that uh, that sounds so interesting. Well, talking about encryption then, your study also talked about barriers to successful mm-hmm. encryption strategy. And you mentioned in the study that it has to do with knowing where the data is even at. So maybe you can talk a right. little bit about your findings there. Sure. So um, the barriers are not only the technology limits, but it's actually people-related problems. Sometimes people forget that even if it's IT security, it's still security, and good people make mistakes. And I I hate to say this, but they do stupid things. And as a result of their mistakes, we have data breaches and all sorts of problems. You mentioned in your example of phishing, not paying attention to those details can lead to huge issues. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, in terms of barrier, again, the personnel issue is important. Uh, another barrier to success is um, not having a strategy, you know, basically deploying encryption on an, uh, on an ad hoc basis. Having a strategy is important. Uh, knowing where your data is really important, having an inventory of that. Having a, a method, uh, a, uh, maybe a centralized method, but a method for controlling your uh, your encryption keys, that's very important. So. You know, the key variable is um, having a governance and control process that underlies everything. It's not, again, relying solely on the technology. But in, the technology is important, too, because you want it to be, have a high degree of interoperability. And you want to make it easier to integrate throughout the organization. Uh, and those things do become important, but only after you've figured out the governance and control issues. Yeah, and, you know, so many of my clients come to me after they've tried to, like you said, ad hoc to to get it out there, but then they find themselves with huge gaps. So uh, right. I know your, your study also addressed deployment and, you know, how the fact that it, a lot of times organizations, when they think of encryption, they think they just have one encryption solution, but actually they have many different uh, encryption solutions. So what did you find with regard to deployment choices with regard to your, your study participants? Right. So, you know, what we basically found is that there's no single encryption technology that that's dominant in organizations. That basically, as you mentioned, we basically have lots of technologies or, or applications that basically are, you know, that require encryption or support encryption. So things like uh, email communication would be one. Um, another example would be, as I mentioned, uh, communication to the cloud, a cloud platform for both uh, services and infrastructure could be another area. Um, issues relating to, um, uh, you know, creating secure security at the application level could be uh, very important for, you know, having a encryption solution as well as network security. So again, the key variable is um, when you basically in, when you basically have more than one application, it's really critical to have interoperability so that you're not having to relearn things over and over again, and you're complying with this common standard. You know that standard may be AES, you know two fifty six K, or it could be. It, 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 the key variable is you know seeing the big picture, not just focusing on the one small application. And if there's inconsistency. And that could be a problem, even if it's just one application out of many. So that's why it's important to kind of have the big picture view. Yes. And also, to your point about having different encryption solutions in different places, so many organizations now are going to the cloud, using different cloud services. And your right. study 
address that. So what did you find about encryption in, in public cloud services that businesses use? Well, I think there was a lot of fear early on by, by folks, and rightfully so, that the data that's in the cloud is there because of cost constraints. Like it's cheaper to use a cloud than to be on-premises. And, mm-hmm. and that's actually not true anymore. Mm-hmm. But cloud has evolved quite a bit. And so in some, place, some cases, having uh, cloud security uh, versus security on-premise could actually be both cost savings and lead to a higher security, better, stronger security posture. Um, but there's mm-hmm. definitely been an issue in terms of, you know, how do you encrypt in the cloud? Uh, do you basically uh, bring your own encryption key to the cloud, or do you have to share it with the cloud provider? Uh, and, and then the whole issue around, um, you know, making sure that the tools that you're using are internally consistent becomes very important as well. So I think over time, though, there seems to be this, this move to the cloud uh, you know, and having a kind of a strategy that's on cl- in cloud as well as on premises. So it's not one or the other. It's kind of evolving as both. You know, most organizations will have a piece of their operation, you know, in the cloud, but not not fully and and similarly to right. some of their uh, their activities on premise. <laughs> well, and yeah, and what I found interesting was that uh, your report said that the encryption in public cloud services grew from 28% to 39% in uh, 2017, which was, you know, that's an 11% jump. So that's uh, pretty good. That's pretty good. And and, and from a statistical point of view, the study has a very low, which is a good thing, Mm -hmm. margin of error. And so the margin of error is like a little bit less than four. It's at four percent approximately. So when you get a ten to eleven point spread like that, it is statistically significant at the ninety-five percent level of confidence. So it's a big deal. Yes, and I, and I'm glad you talked about uh, you know your statistics and how accurate they are because I do want to point out to the listeners that when you are doing your studies, what I really like about your studies. Uh, Dr. Poneman, is that you do make them statistically accurate when so many times we so, see other types of so-called studies and they just kind of put, you know, a questionnaire on, on the internet and they just take the, the findings and they say this is an indication of trend. But um, we're coming to the end here, but I, I thought it would be helpful for the listeners to understand that you put a lot of attention and care into making sure that your results are statistically accurate. Absolutely. The the key to success in the research business is integrity and uh, and trust. Uh, And it's probably true in most businesses, but it's really the the whole ball of wax. Um, When we do a study, sometimes the results you get are just not what you expected, and you might have some unhappy sponsors because they're hoping for a different type of result, but you have to be independent and objective, and you have to make sure that when you analyze the data that you're using appropriate procedures and we, t- we spend a lot of time, an inordinate amount of time sometimes, just to basically make sure that we're complying with the rigorous process, research process. And so I, thank I you really for bringing like, that up. Yeah, well, you know, that's something that oftentimes, and I tend to be skeptical about, 
you know, a lot of things that I read online, of course, everybody has to be skeptical, yeah. but I do really appreciate the fact that you put mathematical rigor into your studies because, you know, that's one of my degrees too, mathematics. So it's, that's something I look for. Yeah. So it's like, well, I'm glad to see that this can be supported with actual algorithms that show that, yes, uh, we did, <laughs> we did do this and we're pretty confident with our results here. So I did want to point that out for folks. But, um, you know, again, we're at the end of the show, but I thank you so much, um, Larry, for being on the show. And the time went by so quickly. And there's so much more that the listeners, uh, and we have listeners from all over the world, including from Germany. So I'm sure a lot of our listeners from Germany are going to want to read what you talked about earlier. But uh, definitely please uh, go to Larry's website. It's poneman.org. And uh, I will put on the show description where you can go as well. And Larry mentioned that earlier. So uh, thank you for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Rebecca. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks. So today we've been speaking with uh, Dr. Larry Poneman, chairman and founder of the Poneman Institute, about encryption trends throughout the world. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. Please tune in to my show each week. And if you can't make our scheduled live time, you will be able to listen to the recordings. And you can find recordings of all my past shows on your favorite podcast outlets, such as iTunes.com, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, and so many others in addition of course to the voiceamerica.com business channel website and get in touch with me if you have any information security privacy and compliance questions need a keynote i've done expert witness work as well and you can see more information about my symbus360.com and privacyguidance.com business by going there. Um, I urge you to notice and stay aware of information security and privacy issues as you go about your daily activities, go to your job and do your daily work, or encounter anything else involving your personal information and knowing how it's secured and potentially used in ways that could impact your privacy. Until our next show, ask those you do business with and work for if they are doing all they can to secure the information that you've entrusted to them. Be privacy aware in the week ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week, stay safe. Stay safe.